0: Regulatory capture refers to the corruption of a regulatory body by entities to which the regulations that body creates and enforces apply. So an organization that wants to see less funding for public schools and more for private and homeschooling options, getting one of their people into a position at the Department of Education or someone from Goldman Sachs or another similar financial institution getting shoehorned into a position at the Federal Reserve could, through some lenses at least, And depending on how many connections those people in those positions have to those other affiliated ideological and commercial institutions could be construed as engaging in regulatory capture because they are now able to control the levers of regulation that apply to their own business or industry or that of their peers, the folks they previously worked with and people to whom they maybe owe favors or vice versa and that could lead to regulations that are more favorable to them and their preferred causes, and those of their fellow travelers. This is in contrast to regulatory bodies that apply limits to such businesses and organizations, figuring out where they might overstep or lock in their own power at the expense of the industry in which they operate, and slowly over time plugging loopholes, finding instances of not-quite-illegal misdeeds that nonetheless lead to negative outcomes, and generally being the entity in charge in spaces that might otherwise be dominated by just one or two businesses that can kill off all their competition and make things worse for consumers and workers. That is the typical approach that regulatory bodies take, or at least ostensibly take. Often, rather than regulatory capture being a matter of one person from a group insinuating themselves into the relevant regulatory body, the regulatory body itself will ask representatives from the industry they regulate to help them make law. Because, seemingly at least, supposedly, those regulatees should know the business better than anyone else, and in hoping to create their own constraints, Again, ostensibly, they should be more willing to play by the rules because they helped develop the rules to which they are meant to abide, and probably helped develop rules that they can live with and thrive under. Because most regulators are not trying to kill ambition or innovation or profit, they are just trying to prevent abuses and monopolistic hoarding. And that is why often these types of relationships, seemingly at least, make sense even in the eyes of the regulator. This sort of capture has taken many shapes over the years and has occurred at many scales. In the late 19th century, for instance, railroad tycoons petitioned the U.S. government for regulation to help them bypass a clutter of state-level regulations that were making it difficult and expensive for them to do business. And in doing so, in asking it to be regulated and helping the federal government develop the applicable regulations, They were able to make their own lives easier while also creating what was effectively a cartel for themselves with the blessing of the government that regulated their power. The industry as it existed when those regulations were signed into law was basically locked into place in such a way that no new competitors could practically arise. Similar efforts have been launched, at times quite successfully, by entities in the energy space, across various aspects of the financial world, and in just about every other sliver of every other industry you can imagine, from Motorcyclists' protective clothing, to cheerleading competitions, to aviation and its many facets, all have been to some degree and at some point allegedly regulatorily captured so that those being regulated to some degree control the regulations under which they operate, and which as a consequence has at times allowed them to create constraints that benefit them, the corporations, and entrench their own power rather than opening their industry up and increasing competition and safety and the treatment and the benefits afforded to customers and workers, as is generally the intended outcome of such regulations. What I would like to talk about today is the burgeoning world of artificial intelligence and why some players in this space are being accused of attempting the time-tested tactic of regulatory capture at a pivotal moment of AI development and deployment. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. Learn more about Let's Know Things, subscribe to receive free email updates, and or become a supporter to receive monthly bonus episodes at letsknowthings.com. At the tail end of October 2023, U.S. President Biden announced that he was signing a fairly expansive executive order on AI, the first of its kind, and reportedly the first step toward still greater and more concrete regulation. A poll conducted by the AI Policy Institute suggests that Americans are generally in favor of this sort of regulatory move, weighing in at 68% in favor of the initiative, which is a really solid in-favor number, especially at a moment as politically divided as this one. And most of the companies working in this space, at least at the large enough scale required to show up on the map for AI at this point, seem to be in favor of this executive order as well, with some caveats that I will get into in a bit. That indicates the government probably got things pretty close to where they need to be in terms of folks actually adhering to these rules. Though it's important to note that part of why there is such broad acceptance of the tenets of this order is is that there aren't any real teeth to these rules. It's largely voluntary stuff, and mostly only applies to the anticipated next generation of artificial intelligence. The current generation of offerings is not powerful enough to fall under its auspices in most cases, so AI companies do not need to do much of anything yet to adhere to these standards, and when they eventually do need to do something to remain in accordance with them, it'll mostly be providing reports to government employees so they can keep tabs on developments, including those happening behind closed doors in this space. Now that is not nothing. At the moment, this industry is essentially a black box as far as would-be regulators are concerned. So simply providing a process through which companies working on advanced AI and AI applications can keep the government informed on their efforts is a big step that raises visibility from zero to some meaningful level. It also provides mechanisms through which such entities can get funding from the government and pathways through which international AI experts can come to the United States with less friction than would be the case for folks trying to immigrate without that expertise. So AI industry entities generally like all of this because it's easy for them to work with, is flexible enough not to punish them if they fail to adhere to its strictures in some regard, but it also provides them with more resources, both monetary and human, and sets the US up in many ways to maintain its current purported AI dominance well into the future, despite essentially everyone especially but not exclusively China, investing a whole lot to catch up and surpass the US in the coming years. Another response to this order, though, and the regulatory infrastructure it creates was voiced by the founder of Google Brain, Andrew Ng, who has been working on AI systems and applications for a very long time and who basically says that some of the biggest players in AI today are playing up the idea that artificial intelligence systems might be dangerous, even to the point of being world-ending, threatening like nuclear weapons are threatening, because they hope to create exactly this sort of regulatory framework at this exact moment, because right now they are the kings of the AI ecosystem, and they are hoping to lock that influence in, denying easy access to any future competitors. This theory is predicated on that concept I mentioned in the intro, regulatory capture. And history is rich with examples of folks in positions of power in various spaces telling their governments to put their industry on lockdown and making the case for why this is necessary because they know in doing so their position at the top will probably be made more certain, locked in, because it will become more difficult and expensive and thus out of reach for any newer, smaller, not already influential and powerful competitor to then challenge them moving forward. One way this might manifest in the AI space, according to Ng, is through the licensing of powerful AI models essentially saying, if you want to use the more powerful AI systems for your product or research, you need to register with the government and you need to buy access, basically, to those systems from one of these government-sanctioned providers. Only then will we allow you to play in this potentially dangerous space with these highest-end AI models, treating these powerful AI models like dangerous chemicals, basically. This, in turn, would substantially reduce innovation as other entities would not be able to legally evolve their AI in certain directions, at least not at a high level. And it would make today's behemoths, the open AIs and metas of the world, all but invulnerable to future challenges because their models would be the ones made available to everyone else. No one else could compete, not practically at least, if they are following these government regulations. That would be not great for smaller upstart AI companies, but it would be especially detrimental to open source large language models, versions of the most popular LLM-based AI systems that are open to the public to mess around with and use however they see fit, rather than being controlled and sold by a single company. These models would be unlikely to have the resources or governing body necessary to step into the position of regulator approved moderator of a potentially dangerous AI system. And the open source credo doesn't really play well with that kind of setup to begin with, as the idea is that all of the code is open and accessible to take and see and use and change. So locking it down at all would violate those principles. And this sort of regulatory approach would be all about the lockdown on fears of bad actors getting their hands on high end AI systems, things that are as dangerous or more dangerous as things like nuclear weapons or biological weapons. And these are fears that have been flogged by entities like OpenAI. So that collection of fears are potentially fueling the relatively fast-moving regulatory developments related to AI in the United States right now. Regulation, by the way, that is typically slower-moving in the United States, which is part of why this is so notable. The speed at which it is moving is different from how regulations evolve in the U.S. in different industries and for different technologies. This is not a U.S. exclusive concern though, nor is this executive order the only big new regulatory effort in this space. At a summit in the UK, just days after the US executive order was announced, AI companies from around the world and those who govern such entities met up to discuss the potential national security risks inherent in artificial intelligence tools and to sign a legally non-binding agreement to let their governments test their newest, most powerful models for risks before they are released to the public. The U.S. participated in this summit as well, and a lot of these new rules overlap with each other, those at this U.K. summit and the executive order in the U.S., as the executive order shares a lot of tenets with the agreement signed at that meeting in the U.K., though the executive order was U.S. specific and included a lot of non-security elements as well. And that will be the case for laws and orders passed in the many different countries to which these sorts of global concerns apply each with their own approach to implementing those more broadly agreed-upon specifics at the national level. This summit announced the creation of an international panel of experts who will publish an annual report on the the state-of-the-art within the AI space, especially as it applies to national security risks like misinformation and cybersecurity issues, And when questioned about whether the UK should take things a step further, locking some of these ideas and rules into place and making them legal requirements rather than things corporations agree to do but are not punished for not doing, the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak said in essence that this sort of thing takes time and that is a sentiment that has been echoed by many other lawmakers and by people within the industry as well. We know there need to be stricter and more enforceable regulations in this space, in other words, but because of where we are with this collection of technologies and the culture and rules and applications of them, right now we do not know which laws would make the most sense. No nation wants to tie its own hands when it comes to developing increasingly useful and powerful AI tools and moving too fast on the concrete versions of these sorts of agreements could end up doing exactly that. There's no way to know what the best rules and regulations will be yet because we are standing at the precipice of what could be a long journey toward a bunch of new discoveries and applications. That's why the U.S. executive order is set up in the way that it is too. Biden and his advisors do not want to slow down the development in this space within the U.S., They want to amplify it while also providing some foundational structure for whatever they decide needs to be built next. But those next step decisions will be shaped by how these technologies and industries evolve over the next several years. The US and other countries are also setting up agencies and institutes and all sorts of safety precautions related to this space, but most of them lack substance at this point. And as with the aforementioned regulations, these agency setups and their composition are primarily just first draft guide rails, if that, at this point. Notably, the EU seems to be orienting around somewhat sterner regulations, but they have not been able to agree on anything concrete quite yet. So despite typically taking the lead on this sort of thing, the EU is a little bit behind the US in terms of AI regulation right now, though it's likely that when the EU does finally put something into place, it'll be a bit harder core than what the US has currently. A few analysts in this space have argued that these new regulations, lightweight as they are both on the global and US level, by definition will hobble innovation because regulations tend to do that. They are opinionated about what is important and what is not, and that then shapes the direction makers in the regulated space will tend to go. There's also a chance that, as I mentioned before, this set of regulations laid out in this way will lock the power of incumbent AI companies into place, protecting them from future competitors, and in doing so, killing off a lot of the forces of innovation that would otherwise lead to unpredictable sorts of outcomes, both positive and negative. One big question, then, is how light a touch these initial regulations will actually end up having, how the AI and adjacent industries will reshape themselves to account for these and predicted future regulations, and to what degree open-source alternatives and other third-party alternatives beyond the current incumbents will be able to step in and take market share nudging things in different directions and potentially either then being incorporated into and shaping those future more toothy regulations or halting the deployment of those regulations by showing that the current direction of regulatory development no longer makes sense. We'll also see how burdensome the testing and other security related requirements in these initial rules end up being as there's a chance more attention and resources will shift toward lighter weight, less technically powerful, but more useful and deployable versions of these current AI tools, which is already something that many entities are experimenting with, because that comes with other benefits like being able to run AI on devices like a smartphone without needing to connect through the Internet to a huge server somewhere doing it all completely on-device. Refocusing on smaller models could also allow some developers and companies to move a lot faster than their more powerful but plodding and regulatorily hobbled kin, rewiring the industry in their favor rather than toward those that are currently expected to dominate this space for the foreseeable future. The book I'd like to recommend today is called The Resistors by Gish Jen. This is a novel, a speculative relatively near future science fiction novel. And it's the sort of speculative science fiction that dramatically amplifies things that are happening today to show one version, kind of a satirical, caricaturized version, of what things might look like if taken to an extreme. In this case, mega corporations own everything. There's not really nation-states anymore. Things are owned by different corporations. People live within the auspices and rules and laws of various corporations. And there's a hierarchy within society that keeps some people at the bottom, some people up closer to the top. And within that lower strata of society, a girl is born who has an incredible pitching arm, pitching for baseball. And because of the geopolitical needs of the megacorporation within which she and her family live, that then helps her defy some of those rules inherent in the social strata of her society, and that then allows us to take a look at that society, how it functions, people's roles within it, and it allows the author to engage in some interesting world building as well, which to me was one of the stronger aspects of the book. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of The Resistors by Gish Jen. You can subscribe to receive email updates, find show notes and other such content and support this show financially, receiving additional bonus episodes as a thank you at letsknowthings.com. Learn more about me and my work at Colin.io. Subscribe to my other news-focused podcast, One Sentence News, wherever you get your pods or at OneSentenceNews.com and say howdy on social media. I'm at ColinIsMyName on Instagram and Twitter, and Colin Wright on Facebook and YouTube. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week.